Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Beck Strading, the Executive Director of La Trobe, Asia. Over the past five years, India and Australia's bilateral relations appear to be deepening. As a response to rising regional contestation, India and Australia have expanded defence cooperation activities, including through the development of initiatives such as the Quadrilateral Security Dialogue, also known as the Quad. It was also recently announced after years of speculation uh, that India has invited Australia to the Maritime Malabar exercises, taken by many as a sign of deepening cooperation among the Quad countries. Yet there are differences in strategic outlook and trade relations among these states uh, that do remain. So here with me to discuss the bilateral relations between Australia and India and the broader strategic picture of the Indo-Pacific is Raji Pillay Rajagopalan, who is a distinguished fellow and the head of the Nuclear and Space Policy Initiative at the Observer Research Foundation in New Delhi, India. Welcome, Raji. It's terrific to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much, uh, Beck. It's it's an absolute pleasure being here and uh, being part of this conversation. Thank you. Now, I should note that this is being brought to you uh, in collaboration with the Australia India Institute uh, as part of Australia India Week. Uh, and just before we came on the air before, Raji and I were talking about how the last time we saw each other was in New Delhi in January this year, which seems like such an amazingly long time ago. But it, is, it is terrific yeah. to, to have you to have you with Thank us. Thank you. Thank you. So I'll just begin uh, by starting with the observation that Australia and India are Indo-Pacific regional powers and they both face challenges uh, in managing relations, particularly with an increasingly assertive China. Uh, and 2020 has been a rocky year for China-Australia relations, but Unlike India, of course, Australia doesn't have to worry about a land border with China. So my first question, it really gets to the heart of relations between India and China. How have they been going throughout this pandemic? And has the border dispute between these two countries, uh, has it damaged uh, relations more generally? Thank you. I think that's a terrific question to start because I think both India and Australia have been at the receiving end of this uh, Chinese aggressive behavior, whether it is on land border or on trade front and so on and so forth, the cohesive behavior that China has exhibited. So when it comes to India in particular, uh, for close to five decades, India and China took pride in the fact that there has been no fatalities or even casualties on the line of actual control, which is the de facto border between India and China. And there was a certain amount of peace and stability uh, that prevailed on the border, despite the occasional flare-ups uh, from time to time. Uh, even the Doklam conflict that erupted in 2017 did not result in any casualty. But I think in, it's now five months since the Indian and Chinese military forces 
clashed at Galvin in Ladakh on the western sector of the Sino-Indian border, uh, including the killing of the 20 Indian soldiers and unconfirmed number of forces on the Chinese side as well. And there have been several records that have been sort of broken. Uh, shots have been fired in the last few weeks, which again have not happened for several decades. Therefore, I would say that it is very difficult to imagine that it will be business as usual after the current Galvin clash, in a sense. I think it's going to be very difficult to go back to as if nothing happened. But I think uh, one big uh, shift that I see, there has always been the public opinion has not been particularly soft towards China. But the biggest shift that I see is the elite perception of China today. The elite perception has moved to somewhat harsher towards China. For instance, some of the uh, folks who have held highest positions with regard to China, uh, the former ambassador, Ambassador Gautam Bambavale, uh, who has spoken very harshly about China to say that things are not uh, where it should have been. And this is a serious moment in India-China relations. He's even talked about operationalizing Quad, partnership with like-minded countries in undertaking military operations and so forth partnership with like-minded countries across the Indo-Pacific is gaining greater traction in current times. Ambassador Shivashankar Menon, who was the former foreign secretary as well as the national security advisor, again has spoken in very similar terms. But to me, the most surprising person has been the, the former secretary, foreign secretary, Vijay Gokhale, who in fact facilitated the Wuhan summit, has now been writing several columns. He has spoken in very harsh terms about China, saying that it is a very different beast that you're dealing with and we need to get very serious about it and in fact calling for again like-minded partners to come together and uh, public anger of course has been fairly strong very very antagonistic and in fact a recent survey actually talked about where they asked for instance what do you think of china's action with survey india almost 51 percent said that they befit that of an enemy nation only about 35% said it is more of a posturing and so on and so forth. How do you view China? 83% came out unfavorably towards China. So the public mood has been fairly uh, sort of angry towards China. The public anger has been understandable given that the Galvan clashes in that sense. It's been a game changer moment for India, at least as far as India's China policy is concerned. So there is even these former ambassadors and others write very clearly saying that there has been something seriously wrong with the India's China policy. It has not worked. Whatever worked till now, it is not going to be the same case. So we need a, a reappraisal, a fresh assessment on how we deal with China in a sense. So that's something really new that elite perception on China is something that I have not seen because these are people who have held very nuanced and very balanced positions or even to the point of saying that you know um, India and China are the great Asian uh, countries that would lead the Asian century and so on and so forth so for them to actually come out with such perspective I think that's something very new that I'm seeing in a sense. That's really interesting I think that you could probably make a similar observation in yeah. shifting perceptions among the strategic elite in Australia as well. So we have a very important election coming up in the United States. I want to get to that, but I'm going to do it uh, kind of tangentially because your area of particular expertise is nuclear and space policy. And there's this sort of growing strategic competition in the domain of space. And part of the uh, US incumbent President Donald Trump's platform is boots on the moon. 
So I'm wondering, what do you make of this prospect of increased strategic competition in the domain of space? Um, What implications for security are there in the Indo-Pacific? What are the sort of key security issues when it comes to governing this area? Thank you. Thank you for that question, because I don't uh, I think space is not really part of the a uh, lot of the conversation. So in a sense, uh, it, it's good to talk about the space aspects. And I think it is gaining greater salience even in the Indo-Pacific, in, in India, Australia. I would start with first the return of the anti-satellite weapons, in a sense. Uh, China's first uh, successful conduct of anti-satellite test in January 2007 was a sort of a wake up moment in India and the larger Indo-Pacific, because China was essentially breaking a record that was maintained for about two decades. No country, both the U.S. and the U.S.S.R. had stopped conducting of the anti-satellite, their anti-satellite test. But now with the Chinese breaking that moratorium that existed, China was kind of opening the Pandora's box. So in 2008, the U.S. went ahead and did its own test. More importantly, it started new debates within countries like India, because India earlier took that these are big boys toys, we shouldn't be worried about ASATs and space security competition and so on and so forth. But the Chinese ASAT has completely changed the perception within India. There was almost a unanimous view across the Indian military, political leadership, as well as the civil bureaucracy that came out arguing that India needs to step up its capabilities, needs to do something so as to protect its own space assets, because we are also significantly invested for social, economic and developmental uh, agenda. But also there are increasingly security driven satellite functions that are uh, becoming more uh, important for India. One is the rise of the whole ASAT anti-satellite capabilities uh, that is now beginning to happen spread in a sense. So China, then we, India conducted its own anti-satellite test in March 2019. Now Japan has made some fresh budget allocations for uh, developing an interceptor capability. So again, things are going to spread. This is a capability that it looks like it's going to spread. So that's one set of issues. But I also see increasing number, increasing incidents of satellite operation interference through use of cyber and electronic warfare in space again. These capabilities have not been fielded or operationalized asset, but these are being tested to check the feasibility of such kind of options in space, but also to send a message to your adversary that I do have these capabilities now and I can inflict pain on you. So these do create satellite disruptions, operational uh, disturbances do come and so on and so forth. So this is the broad setting that we are looking at when we talk about the, because militarization of space is something that has already happened with most militaries around the world using space assets for a number of passive military applications, ISR, for instance, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance. But the early trend towards space weaponization is more worrying. And that is something that is gaining greater momentum, one, because of the US and China rivalry that has gone up several notches in the last few months and years. And even US-Russia relations are not particularly in a great place. So again, giving way to more of security challenges in, in the space domain. But when it comes to global governance, again, we are not in a good place. Uh, The Conference on Disarmament in Geneva is a UN multilateral body that works on space security or arms control issues. Uh, See, 
OECD has not debated or negotiated any treaty for more than two decades now. In fact, the last time they debated something negotiated was in 1996, the CTBT, the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. Since then, there has been no negotiations, absolutely. So we are in a bad place as far as the global governance is concerned because there exist two schools of thought. China and Russia, for instance, believe that you need to have legally binding measures as a way of finding solutions to some of the space security challenges. Whereas the US and the Western group of countries have believed that uh, right now is not the political climate for entering into legally binding mechanisms or treaties and so on and so forth. And therefore, what we need is transparency and confidence building measures, TCBMs as a, at least to build up the confidence, trust in each other, to work. And I worked with the UNGG. Uh, there is a UN group of governmental experts uh, that was constituted on PAROS, uh, which is prevention of arms race in outer space. And I was part of the UN, this particular group in 2018-19. And I could see the highest level of disagreements between US and China, US and Russia. And these disagreements are not going to go away. They are not going to be easy to resolve. But at the same time, meantime, you have serious security threats that are coming up. Space is already crowded, congested, and with the increasing geopolitical competition, space is also becoming contested. So unless we take effective steps, develop rules of the road, space will become unusable in a sense. The usable areas in space, the orbits are limited in nature. So once again, there is a reiteration of the need for rules of the road. Uh, but I think it's going to be a really a long and hard time before we actually get to build some consensus and develop certain rules on the road, whether as a confidence building measure or something more binding and sort of an instrument. So it's going to be a hard time. And uh, I don't see the immediate political climate sort of a giving way for any major breakthrough when it comes to global governance. That's fascinating. I mean, it seems like such an important issue, not just in the future, but right now. Just on this issue of the US election coming up, do yeah. you think that people in India, whether it's the general public or whether it's uh, the strategic elite, <coughs> have a preference over whether Donald Trump is re-elected or whether Joe Biden becomes okay. the next US president? And if so, what do you think the general feeling is? I think India has come to have a quite a favorable approach, both with a Republican and a Democratic administration. There has been a bipartisan support towards India in a sense. But traditionally or historically, when you look at it, I think uh, India generally fared well under a Republican administration. They have always had somehow worked out better relations with India in a sense. In the recent times, when you look at it, for instance, when Bill Clinton was the president, you had a very, very different approach where he looked at China as a strategic partner and so on and so forth. Right after that, you had President George Bush. Even before coming into office, he talked about as to how India and Japan are the strongest pillars in this Asian century. And he looked at China as a strategic competitor. So in a sense, so there traditionally existed that you know, distinction between a Republican and a Democratic administration and the Republicans have generally favored uh, better relations with India, stronger ties with India. They actually uh, went out of the way to open doors for India and the US-India nuclear deal couldn't have happened under a Democratic administration for sure. In 2005, the Bush administration and the Vajpayee government in India signed the US-India nuclear deal. Even if the Democratic administration has been very favorable to India, they wouldn't have gone that extra step in making sure that a US-India nuclear nuclear deal is done. And a nuclear deal 
even though it's a bilateral agreement it opened doors for india ability to do business nuclear commerce with the rest of the world and so on and so forth that's how india and australia now the uranium sale for instance happened precisely because of the us india nuclear deal and the energy waiver that came about later that is the nuclear suppliers group waiver that was extended to india so i think the relations have generally fared well with the republican but having said that i think uh, we will be i think quite comfortable working with the biden administration even though uh, modi government has invested quite a good deal in with the trump administration so far in the last four years uh, you know with several uh trump making a trip to india and modi going several times having those meetings and even those rallies and so on and so forth uh, there has been quite a bit of investment but i think uh, a biden administration has also an important agenda in pursuing closer relationship and that of a strong stable prosperous indo pacific for which we all need to work together and i think the china factor both trump and biden have been pushing to see who is more harsh on china who has the more hardline policy on china so in a sense the china factor will keep india and the us together in a much more stronger fashion even under the biden administration so fairly bipartisan issue in a sense both in india and the us chinese are helping us a great deal in a sense i say i say it's interesting because um you know the the trump administration is not your usual kind of republican administration oh, So I would just add a line to say that you know the Trump administration has generally been seen as a very transactional person and uh, you know he doesn't have this long term strategic thinking and so on and so forth but I would still say that I think the manner in which he has dealt with India I think is slightly strategic in nature because if he was going to go in a very purely transactional manner I think the US India relations would have hit the rock bottom because there are problems on the economic front and so on and so forth bilateral relations would have suffered a great deal in that sense i think he had that slightly larger perspective the china factor again became something more dominating in his view of india as well i think well we are here celebrating australia india week so let's turn our attention to the australia yeah. india relationship well it seems to me that there have been uh, attempts in the past to develop Uh, economic relations it seems like uh, the deepening of of the relations that i talked about in the introduction has largely been focused in the areas of of defense and security and that might uh, relate to the china factor that you were were talking about in your in your previous answer often this bilateral relationship is sort of described as one of unfulfilled potential uh, so what's yeah. your views on the potential for australia and india in terms of strengthening bilateral ties are there strategic interests aligned is it really about china or do they continue to have some different views on issues of say economic development or other areas you are right increasingly the conversations are led by the strategic uh, convergence between the two sides than purely in the economic domain and i think as the threat from the china factor becomes more and more prominent in the indo pacific conversations uh, between india and australia i would believe that new delhi and canberra would find more innovative ways to work together in first and foremost shaping a stable asian strategic order and i think they are already working in uh, sort of a 
several different millilaterals, whether it is a quad on several other trilaterals and so on and so forth. These have shown several promising signs. There have been upgradation of the quad uh, to ministerial level talks, for instance. I think that's a very clear indication that how invested each of the partners in this are. There are also the bilateral relations have grown immensely over the last four or five years that I look at it in a sense. The official Australia has been so positive about the direction of the relations between the two countries, uh, whether it is the statement from Australian Prime Minister Morrison, the virtual summit that the two sides had, the signing of various agreements, or even the Foreign Minister Mary Spain's statements as the competition intensifies, Australia and India have shared interests in ensuring peaceful development of an open Indo-Pacific, uh, prosperous, inclusive Indo-Pacific region. These aspects are becoming more dominant. The security-driven factors are becoming more driven. And I think both have clear economic and strategic stakes in keeping the region safe secure and prosperous because we both are invested and the two maritime spaces need to be kept open and free in a sense. It is just not a rhetoric, but I think there is so much substantial stake for both countries to keep this region safe. And I think uh, geography will compel both the countries to talk to each other, cooperate with each other more, especially because there is so much economic stake as well. So economic may not be the significant driver, but I think security driven factors, but I think they have also economic stakes. I think the two countries are also conscious of the fact that their own individual capacities, the military capacities to deal with the China problem is not sufficient to address on its own. But at the same time, when they come together in a bilateral or a trilateral or a quadrilateral forum, they have so much more to benefit from each other. There is so much more they can attain together uh, and so on and so forth. That's something that you will see greater traction in the coming years. Now that we have even signed some sort of a logistics service agreement between India and Australia, this would also facilitate greater military-to-military cooperation Already the two countries have been taking part in a number of uh, bilateral and multinational military exercises, including Kakadu, Ausindex, and Black Carolina, and so on and so forth. But I think there is also going to be broader maritime conversation between the two sides, uh, whether it is maritime security, freedom of navigation, open seas, maritime domain awareness. And I think the recent agreements signed between the two sides are going to be helpful in, in sort of propelling these relations to a greater heights in a sense. So in terms of uh, looking to the future, I mean, what are some of the practical steps that India and Australia can take to further strengthen bilateral cooperation within this sort of regional Indo-Pacific context? Recently, ORF partnered with the ASPI, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and we released a report just a couple of weeks ago looking at critical technology, for instance, critical technology and what are the kind of opportunities in the in the larger Indo-Pacific context, but also specifically in the bilateral context. For instance, we looked at uh, data protections and cyber issues, artificial intelligence, quantum technologies, space, of course. And how this can actually channel conversations between the two sides. In some of the areas, maybe the conversations have not really been that much, but I think we still have an opportunity to explore. Maybe within the space domain, I think there has not been as much of a conversation between the two sides on a bilateral basis. But again, this does offer opportunities for the two sides to explore. But of course, the cyber and some of the other technology domains have become already critical. For instance, one of the uh, recent agreements signed was in the in the domain of of uh, cyber technologies. Within the a broader spectrum of uh, critical technologies, there are several different opportunities that are going to be looked at in the, in the coming days. 
Second is, of course, the Global Supply Chain Initiative. And I think that especially in the COVID world, depending on one single source and how much of a vulnerability that poses to countries like India, Japan, Australia, and each one of us, how vulnerable we become because we have that single country dependency in a sense. And I think that has led to some conscious decisions in each of our capitals between India and Australia as well. This has been an important part of it. In a sense, global supply chain resilience is a strategic move, but I think based on a very conscious decision to uh, move away from China and create opportunities elsewhere. So I think that's something that would gain even greater salience in the coming years, in a sense. My third point would be to have regular political and strategic dialogue and coordinated positions on a number of critical developments in the region. And I think this has happened, for instance, between India and Japan, India and the US, uh, and some of these issues have been coming up. But I think this is uh, something uh, for India and Australia to think about how to come out with coordinated positions on whether it is in maritime security issues, South China Sea issue and other issues, China's increasing foray into the Indian Ocean and even other maritime spaces. I think these need to be done if we have to be able to create more traction in actual uh, policy making in a sense. The fourth set of issue where I look at it, which is somewhat complicated but doable, is the intelligence uh, collaboration between the two sides. I say it is complicated because Australia is part of the Five Eyes uh, Nation Arrangement, and therefore there might be certain limitations. But I think this can be explored further to see if there is a way of talking to each other on a more practical basis. Because, for instance, India and the U.S. have signed a number of foundational agreements, defense foundational agreements, for instance. Uh, In fact, the last of the defense foundational agreements are being signed as we speak today at the U.S.-India 2 plus 2 strategic dialogue. Signing some of those agreements do open up the, because they then open up the possibility of sharing classified information on a real-time basis and so on and so forth. So this is something I I would say worth exploring. It's not happening. It is going to be complicated, but I think worth exploring in a sense. My final point is maritime domain awareness. Given that we are both the maritime uh, nations and how we need to be constantly aware of what's happening on the waters, the maritime spaces, I think I would uh, say maritime domain awareness need to be pursued by both countries. That's a very comprehensive sweep of uh, potential policies for deepening uh, India-Australia relations. Uh, Now, Raji, we share a common interest in improving the representation of women in international relations and international security discussions. And I'm a follower of yours on social media, and you regularly call out manuals, which is panels that only feature men. And it's quite staggering how many there are out there in this space. So what do we need to be doing better in terms of increasing representation of women in international relations more generally, but particularly across Asia? Absolutely. No, that's a great question because I think uh, this is something you and I are you know, passionately working towards in that sense to, you know, increase representation, have a balanced uh, panels and so on and so forth. This is going to be a long and hard road ahead. There is no easy answer to this, even though there has been some big change in the field of IR and security studies since I entered the stream in early 90s. There are still some big challenges also. And the density of women is growing at one level. Much younger women are entering the field. 
but when you look at the number of women at leadership levels or managerial roles or mentoring and supervisory roles whether it is in think tanks or in other spaces they represent a very small percentage while women make a sizable number in think tanks and policy world their upward mobility in terms of getting into senior positions and management roles continues to remain a serious issue and i think this comes from the fact that women are not promoted in a more equitable fashion and i think that's possibly one big reason as to why this imbalance in a sense continues to be a case the women and their work continue to be disregarded continue to be ignored for panel discussions for instance or conferences webinars and i think that's one part of the reason as to why women do not enjoy the same upward mobility as well so in a sense it's a cyclical process lack of opportunity for women comes from the fact that your work is ignored so you doesn't get really highlighted showcased in a sense and that leads to this particular problem as for the solutions are concerned i think it, there are very gradual improvement taking place but i don't believe that we can expect dramatic changes to happen in this domain but i think we need to keep pushing this idea and i think talking about these issues itself i think it's a good thing because they do create greater awareness this is not going to be done overnight um so i would say we need to carry on with the fight call out manners talk to organizers reason out with them and i think social media does provide us with a platform uh, to be seen and heard in many ways um uh, and i think uh, there is also the need to have more number of women in senior positions positions because essentially at the end of the day right now what you're seeing is men organizing most of these panel discussions conferences and so forth and they call out their peers their friends who are part of their network they don't make that effort to step out bring in new faces new perspectives therefore we need to have more women in leader senior positions who can then expand the kind of network of people who are part of these kind of conversations and so on and so forth i would simply say it's a it's a long battle there is no easy solution when it comes to dealing with this particular issue and i think we could run a whole webinar on that topic and we just march uh in the new year but i think we Absolutely. have some time for q and a so our first question comes from john webb the question was really about the potential for more initiatives for soft diplomacy to kind of balance out the extensive initiatives in hard diplomacy around military assets physical security maritime security do you see opportunities for that to strengthen and really diversify the australia india relationship thank you john i think that's a great question and i think uh, surely uh, maritime security uh, the indo pacific security uh, have been at the forefront at least in recent years in terms of relations between india and australia i think the softer aspect of diplomacy uh, has also been a long term agenda on both sides for instance the number of indians who travel to uh, australia and looking at australia as a destination for higher education i think that's a softer aspect of diplomacy that may have been forgotten in recent times that's a clearly a big part of the agenda between india and australia i think even in terms of education across the board whether it's in science and technology there are also other vocational courses so education has remained at the center of india australia soft diplomacy but i think it is just that the challenge that we face from china in particular has been fairly uh, significant in the last few years and especially in 2020 both have been at the receiving end of the chinese aggressive behavior and therefore they have become 
are much more dominant as part of the bilateral conversations. But I think I do see people to people ties and especially education as a glue between the two sides as something that will sustain the relationship into a longer term partnership. Thank you for your question, John. Our next question asker will be Matthew Durbin. I'll read the question out. Do you detect any interest from the Modi government in moving away from a non-aligned posture to establishing bilateral defence agreements with a view to containing or countering China? Thank you, Matthew. I think that's a terrific question. I think uh, to uh, any external observer, there must be a lot of confusing signs of where India stands on a number of these kind of uh, issues. Because on the one hand, India has become a lot more committed and investor partner in groupings like the Quad or pursuing trilaterals in India-US and India-US-Japan and a lot of these kind of uh, collaborations, India, Australia and Indonesia. But at the same time, after several years, Modi actually took part in the non-alignment summit this year, kind of beginning to send some confusing signals as to where India stands. Second, I think uh, even in the middle of the India-China standoff on the border, India took part in the BRICS meeting, for instance. BRICS is the Brazil, Russia, India, China, uh, South Africa grouping. We took part in the RIC uh, strategic grouping, that is the Russia-India-China trilateral. So in a sense, it's not very clear as to where does India stand when it comes to its strategic priorities, its strategic partners, and so on and so forth. But I think you need to go by what India does than what India says in most of the time. And I think the fact that we have upgraded the relations, the Quad, for instance, to a ministerial level engagements, the fact that the four foreign ministers met earlier this month, I think, again, an indicator of how India does accord importance to So I think India is taking many steps, Uh, whether we will get to um, signing some defense agreements at this point of time, it is not very clear how quickly that will be done. But I think certainly India has gotten over the, you know, hesitancy in signing, for instance, um, certain logistic service agreements, such as the one we did with Australia earlier, one we did with South Korea, and so on and so forth. So India is increasingly getting comfortable with and the fact that India and the US have concluded four of the foundational agreements that would give us a lot more classified information, higher technology and so on and so forth. So I think India is getting over those hesitancies sooner than later that I look at it now. And I think that will give way to uh, more increased, uh, strengthened collaboration between India and like-minded partners and Australia comes as a very important strategic partner, especially the chemistry to a large extent that exists between Modi and Morrison. The first virtual summit for India was with Australia uh, with Prime Minister Morrison. So I think there is a greater warming up of ties and India does look at Australia as an important partner. The fact that Malabar now has invited uh, Australia is a great sign of things to come in a sense. Thank you for that question. I think we've got time for two more questions. So, Malcolm Cook, ask your question, Malcolm. So, first of all, thanks, uh, Raji, for a very comprehensive and succinct presentation. I have a two-hander question for both uh, you and Beck, and is, do you think there is a strong bipartisan agreement in India and Australia on the importance of the bilateral relationship that's been growing, as we've noted, or could change of governments in New Delhi or Canberra lead to a significant change in the direction of bilateral relations? Thanks. 
we are in for luck because I think we are going to have the BJP government continue in office for quite some time because the Indian opposition party, uh, the Congress party has been in really, really in shambles. They have not been able to uh, really come up with uh, an effective positioning on any number of issues. But having said that, I think even the Congress party is, is in a place where we want to develop a closer relationship with, uh, with Australia, even though the new face of the India-Australia relationship has been by and large done by the BJP government since 2014 after the Modi government came into office. But that is not to underestimate the potential role of um, uh, should we have a Congress-led government in, in office tomorrow, I think that relationship will continue. Because I think the Indo-Pacific security and strategic aspects uh, have become so strong in most of our bilateral relations that it is very difficult to see how India might slow down at any point in any of our relations with some of the like-minded partners and Australia is high on that particular list of countries that India would continue to work with in a sense. So India-Australia relationship, I think we are in for a longer term partnership. I don't see the dilution. I only see the strengthening both on the softer diplomacy, but also on the hard diplomacy and the hard military and security domains in a sense. Well, thank you for including me in that question, Malcolm. I was expecting to be asking the questions rather than answering them. But just briefly on the Canberra issue, I mean, there's a lot of uh, bipartisanship uh, when it comes to foreign policy in Australia. And I think the real question is about the economic side of the relationship. That's where things have been sort of difficult in the Australia-India relationship. The 2018 report written by Peter Varghese has essentially been shelved, it seems, in favour of a relationship based on security and defence. So I guess the question would be, how far would a Labor government be willing to continue to focus primarily on security and defence and putting aside some of those crucial economic issues? So that would be my very brief answer, Malcolm. So our final question I would invite Mike Moignard. Thanks, yes. Beck. It's uh, Mike Moignard. I'm with the uh, Australia India Institute. And Rajshi, thank you very much for your comments. And it actually follows on from what Beck was saying uh, in terms of uh, trade relations between India and Australia. We don't have much movement on the Comprehensive Economic Cooperation Agreement, although um, there's a lot going on in other sectors and other parts of the relationship. But uh, in your view, Raji, how important is this agreement and can we expect to have more and a stronger economic relation with India and Australia without it? First, I don't work that much on economy and trade aspects. I think there has been a growing requirement for us to diversify our trade partnerships, trade collaborations. So in that sense, for instance, now that India has been boxed in a conflict with China to this extent, now we are in the fifth month in a sense. So the relationship hit quite a low in a sense. And I think therefore there is an effort on the part of India to diversify. And I, I think it's going to be hard for India to do that, moving away from China to other partners. But I think here is the question. And again, uh, Australia has been hit pretty hard as well by the Chinese uh, trade coercive practices and so on and so forth. There is a clear economic rationale for both countries to 
open up and explore further in how to resolve some of the hurdles that have been worked as impediments, so to say, in reaching that uh, comprehensive economic cooperation agreement. There is a greater willingness on both sides to explore that in a bigger way. I've seen some reportings on this, but I'm not, like I said, I don't work on economy and these issues. Therefore, I'm not entirely familiar with them to uh, say it in uh, as many words. But I think even in the last few weeks ago, I did see some reports uh, saying that we are taking some baby steps in this regard to change the uh, nature of our economic engagement. So I think we will uh, see more positivity even in the economic uh, domain, especially given the kind of challenges that we have been posed by depending so much on China as one of the largest uh, trade partner. I think this has shown that we are also vulnerable increasingly because of that. That has led decision makers in both capitals to think about in very conscious terms to diversify, to engage with each other in a much bigger and positive way from now onwards, I would think. Well, thank you for that question, Mark. I think that's a good place to end. And of course, thank you, Raji, for providing your insights. Thank you so much, Beck. It's been a really fascinating conversation. And thank you to all the uh, audience, the questions that I really enjoyed again. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe, Asia. If you like the podcast, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or other podcasting platforms. You can follow us on Twitter. Raji is at Raji143. I am at Beck Strading and Latrobe Asia is at Latrobe Asia. I'm Beck Strading and thanks for listening.